Welcome to the Bright Cantor Podcast. I'm Joseph Cantor, and today we're talking about traumatic brain injury, and I'm joined by an expert on the topic, Ann McDonald. Ann is the Executive Director of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia, and Ann, thank you for coming on the show. I'm excited to be here and get a chance to talk to you, Joseph. Thanks. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. I began my career in occupation, occupational therapy at Sheltering Arms Hospital, and we decided very early on in my employment there to open a brain injury unit, so I was the first OT there. I practiced um, at Sheltering Arms for about 15 years, and I worked with patients from those who were still in a coma to just waking up from coma to folks that were in the community and trying to you know, regain their lives back after a pretty serious brain injury. So I had 15 years of clinical experience before I moved to the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. And, and in part, that was because I felt like I wanted to advocate for people with brain injury across the state rather than just across the hospital. And so I've been at the Brain Injury Association of Virginia nearly 20 years now and um, have seen a lot of change in the field in that time. Tell us a little bit about the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. What is the mission? The mission is to advance education, outreach, support, research, public awareness, and advocacy to improve the quality of life for anybody in Virginia that's been impacted by brain injury. That includes the individual who's had the injury, their family caregivers, and the professionals that care for and about them. Let's just talk about the basics of brain injury. What is a brain injury? A brain injury is... Uh, takes one of two forms. You know, you can have a traumatic brain injury, and I think that's the one that most people tend to think about. That really involves a blow to the head or a fall where your head hits something. It can involve something like strangulation um, that happens sometimes in domestic violence attacks. In those instances, you know, the brain starts sloshing around inside the skull and it gets bruised and damaged and the neural pathways or the highways of information in the brain get damaged, sort of like a pothole. And so individuals may have trouble finding the right word or processing information in a timely way. Sometimes they have memory problems, but it essentially sort of disrupts the normal function of the brain in some way. An acquired brain injury or a non-traumatic brain injury um, usually involves some sort of an internal process like a stroke or a brain tumor, or an aneurysm, or things like that. You know, sometimes it can be a brain infection. Um, those sorts of damages are very different from what you see in a traumatic injury because they tend to be what we refer to as focal, just sort of affecting one part of the brain. But when someone has a traumatic brain injury, and the brain, like I said, sort of gets moved around inside the skull, the whole brain becomes impacted and can sometimes lead to a wide constellation of cognitive physical and behavioral deficits. You talked about this a little bit, but what are the most common causes of brain injury? The number one cause, interestingly enough, is falls. And it's growing among the elderly, particularly as people grow older for longer than they used to. It's also pretty common in kids who are learning to walk or riding bikes and that sort of thing. Um, the number two cause of traumatic brain injury is car accidents, and we have seen that drop substantially over the years as cars have gotten safer and people are using seat belts more and that sort of thing. Strokes can be a result of cardiovascular disease and, you know, aneurysms are just sort of a weird anatomical anomaly inside the brain. 
I know you've dealt with dozens, if not hundreds, of brain injury survivors and their families over the course of your career. And we want to hear some of your favorite stories of survivors of brain injury and uh, what they went through. Um, well, you know, I have these stories of people who were just waking up from coma, and some of those are pretty funny. And I have stories from folks that have been attending our summer camp program for years. So the first one that I always think of in the hospital is this young man who had been um, in a car accident, and he had gone to MCV to be stabilized. And he had what we used to call the MCV haircut. They only shaved the part of his head that had to be operated on. And this guy had long hair. So he had almost no hair on one side of his head, really long hair on the other side of his head. And so he came to Sheltering Arms for Rehab, and he'd been about two weeks out of the injury, and he'd been with us about 10 days, and he hadn't spoken a word at MCV or at Sheltering Arms. And so, you know, like I did every morning, I walked in and I said, good morning, you know, John, I'm from occupational therapy. It's time to get up and get going. And so he got up and he was participating in getting bathed and all of that, sort of dressing himself. And so we got over to the mirror and I said, you need to brush your teeth and comb your hair. So he brushed his teeth and he started to comb his hair and he had his head down like this. And I said, you know, John, I think when you comb your hair, you need to look up in the mirror and watch what you're doing. And he looked up and all of a sudden his eyes got real big and he said, what the hell happened to my hair? First words he spoke in two weeks, three weeks. And I said, yes, he's in there. <laughs> so that was, and trust me, I cleaned up that language. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> And interestingly enough, so I was just telling this story the other day. It also involves hair. I just realized that. So we had a young man at camp, and on Monday nights we have a kickball game. And Susan Connors, who is the president and CEO of the Brain Injury Association of America, loves kickball. So she was in town, and she decided to join us for the game. So afterwards, she was going around, and she was introducing herself to campers, and she introduced herself to Doug, and she said, hi, Doug, I'm Susan. And Doug looked at her and he said, what do you do? And she said, well, I run the Brain Injury Association of America. And he looked at her and he said, with that hair? <laughs> you know, when the filter goes away, which frequently happens in traumatic brain injury, all of those things that are funny in our head but we know better than to say just sort of come out of the mouths of folks who are recovering from brain injury. And you can't help but laugh at a whole lot of them. I'm sure. You know, and I had, um, you know, some amazing and touching stories along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I can think back to hundreds of inappropriate things that got said that made me laugh and gave us an opportunity for educating, you know, some things that are funny in your head need to stay in your head, you know, right. that kind of thing. Um, you know, one of the most uh, amazing stories that I've that I've known is that, uh, you know, I've talked a couple of times about camp, so I probably need to give you some background on that. So years ago when we got started, we were started by parents who had kids that were recovering from brain injury. And this is in the early 80s when we were just learning how to keep these folks alive. And there were no systems of care for them. And so our founder, who came to us after her son sustained an injury playing football at Douglas Freeman, Back in 1977, long before we were talking about brain injury in football, right? Um, she needed a break. 
And she was our founder. And she said, I need a break. You guys need to figure out how to make that happen. And we said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. So we created Camp Bruce McCoy. The time it was called Camp Freedom. But the name changed to Bruce McCoy in honor of the first of the original group of campers to pass. And now it has evolved into a two-week program where we bring about 45 survivors of brain injury to a place in Chesapeake, and it's a traditional camp experience, you know, for them. And they have a a week-long vacation, and they go canoeing and horseback riding, and we have a dance, and they sing karaoke and all kinds of things. But their families get a week-long break, which is really, really amazing. And so, you know, we've had lots of amazing things happen at camp because people begin to believe in themselves again. You know, if they've been living at home and have been sheltered because somebody is afraid they're going to get hurt, you know, they come to camp and we let them do what they want to do, including a high ropes course. Now, we're very careful and we watch them very closely and we have a gazillion safety measures in place, but we let them try. And so this young woman who came one year to camp, um, she came for the first week and she tried to get up the tree to do the ropes course, and she just couldn't. And she was sort of devastated by that. So we had a cancellation, and we asked her if she wanted to stay a second week, and she did, and she decided she was going to try that ropes course again. And the second week, she got up, and she finished the course successfully. And because of the confidence that that inspired, within the next year, she got her driver's license back, she got her job back, and she moved out into her own apartment just from a one-week experience at camp. Wow. Two weeks, actually, where she was able to do something that nobody ever thought she'd be able to do. So, you know, who doesn't want to be a piece of that? No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Where is the camp? Where does the camp take place? Well, normally it takes place down in Chesapeake, a place called the Triple R Ranch. Um, When we showed up 25 years ago and said, we want to put people with brain injuries on horses and put them on canoes and we want to use your high ropes course, they were not at all sure about that. But we said, trust us, we know how to do this. And so they've been really accommodating and grown to love our campers as well. And it's a terrific location because we can do just any number of programming options right there without ever having to leave. And as they've grown more comfortable with our folks, they've expanded their programming option. We told them the first year, we just need a little ramp so that we can get the wheelchairs up and get these people on horses. And they said, well, this we've got to see. So they built us a little ramp. The next year when we came back, the ramp was a little fancier. And the third year, it was a lot fancier. And since then... They've built an indoor riding rink and have their staff certified uh, to do therapeutic riding, and all because they got used to living and working with people with disabilities because we showed up at their place to hold camp. That's amazing. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, they, we show up on Saturday. Uh, camp actually starts on Sunday when the campers arrive, but on Saturday they start coming around and they say, is Greg going to be here? Is Sean going to be there? Because they've gotten to know some of these folks and are looking forward to having them there. And is, who are the counselors? Is it besides the staff people down there? Mm-hmm. Um, is it BIAV employees or do you bring in outside people? Well, generally we bring in outside people. What we do is we recruit among college kids who are looking to go into jobs, for example, in physical therapy or in occupational therapy or are looking to get into medical school because this is a great opportunity for them to gain some hands-on experience. And then we train them and we provide a lot of supervision. 
we have some folks that started as camp uh, counselors and attendants and who now actually run the program for us. So while they're not BIAV employees, they're we pay them for two weeks of their work to actually be on site and run the program and supervise the activities and the staff and the campers and take them to the hospital if they need to go or make sure that somebody who's on a vegetarian diet doesn't get fed something they don't want, that sort of thing. Very cool. Yeah. All right, let's take a short break and we'll be right back with Ann McDonald. We are back with Ann McDonald, um, and I know you that you're a tireless advocate in the General Assembly for survivors of brain injury and their families. Tell us a little bit about your and BIAV's efforts in the General Assembly. Well, this year was certainly a very different year because of COVID. Normally, I go down to the General Assembly, and I'm down there throughout the session, and I'm talking to anybody who will listen. And sometimes I even ride the elevators just to wait to see who gets on. But this year, it was a very different and more intentional effort of meeting with a number of legislators before the session. Generally, what happens is through a series of focus groups and surveys and talking to folks and doing some research I'll begin to develop the kernel of an idea for some sort of advocacy effort for us to undertake. Most of the time, it is actually to address some sort of unfairness or social justice issue or make sure that folks with brain injuries are treated as equally as anybody else. But there's always a public awareness component to the work that we do. So I'll go and I'll talk to a group of stakeholders that are going to be working with us on some advocacy efforts to see what I can get them to sign on to and what I think has some legs. And so we've done a number of initiatives over the year. We were one of the primary drivers of the sports concussion bill, which is known in Virginia as the Student Athlete Protection Act. We were able to get some return to learn protocols put in place so that kids, when they're returning to school after a brain injury, are properly supported in the classroom during the recovery period. Last year, we were able to pass a bill that requires first responders to get some training on brain injury so that when they show up with somebody who's having the worst day of their life and maybe in the midst of a mental health crisis, that they understand this person may have some cognitive deficits that could look like they were not being cooperative with the efforts of law enforcement in particular. This year, we were able to get two bills passed to update the definitions of brain injuries that are used to determine eligibility for services. We also were successful in getting $1.2 million in new state funding so that the programs that are funded by the state to provide case management services, clubhouse and day program services, and resource coordination services could actually give their staff a raise, absorb some of the increased costs that we've all seen as a result of doing business in a pandemic, and just improve the stability of these state-funded programs that are serving, you know, 4,000 individuals with brain injuries across the state of Virginia. It's really a drop in the bucket. If you look at epidemiological studies and prevalence data and estimates, we have probably 300,000 Virginians who are disabled as a result of brain injury or stroke and who are living in the community who might benefit from services. That aren't receiving the services. That aren't receiving the services, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I understand that BIAV has a new initiative um, involving domestic violence. Yeah, so that's a really funny story. We asked last year in the General Assembly for money to do a project, and it didn't get funded. And so about four months after the General Assembly ended, I got this call from out of the blue from somebody at the Virginia Department of Health that said, I hear you had a great idea. Tell me about it. So I pitched it to her right there, and my idea was that if we had some money, we could contract with four domestic violence programs across the state of Virginia and pair them up with four of the brain injury state-funded case management programs to screen individuals who are seen at the domestic violence programs for the presence of a brain injury. We know that there's a really significant link with brain injury and domestic violence. 50 to 90% of all assaults target the head, neck, or face. And in studies that have been done in other domestic violence programs, the numbers of individuals who've screened positive have been somewhere in the 70, 80, 90%. So what's been missing in those other screening efforts is an intervention piece. And I'm pretty bullish on that because what's the good of screening somebody if they can't get some services? So our idea was that the domestic violence programs would screen these individuals and that the brain injury case management programs would be available to provide them technical assistance, to talk to them about services and resources that might be available. They might actually pick them up for services. BIAB's role in this project is basically to create the love connection between the domestic violence programs and the brain injury programs and provide technical assistance to both. So we've built a website on our page and we've done webinars and we've done a number of trainings. The brain injury programs have been trained on trauma-informed care because it's not something that they talk about frequently even though so many of their clients have been through trauma. And the training for the domestic violence programs is about brain injury. People get kicked out of domestic violence programs all the time, basically for being brain injured. They can't remember to follow through. They have some emotional ability. They can't seem to get their stuff together. They make bad decisions. They go back to their abusers. They can't get along with other people in the shelter because they have a, you know, temper. They get kicked out for being brain injured. And I remember so distinctly the first in-service that I did on brain injury for domestic violence providers, I was talking about all of those things, all of the symptoms that we see survivors struggle with. And those people in the audience thought I was talking about the people that they serve. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I haven't started talking about your people yet. I'm talking about my people. Um, I know that when I was working at Sheltering Arms, I had a number of clients who were there because of domestic violence assaults. So this has been an issue and a passion of mine since you know the late 80s. I actually had a patient one time who um, had killed his girlfriend and tried to kill himself in the domestic violence assault, but he survived. So you know, when you're in healthcare, you you treat the patient in front of you. You can't make a moral judgment about it. So even though I knew what had happened, um, he was still the patient that I had to serve. And I did that, did that with integrity, and I'm proud of it to this day. But I know that, you know, that's a that's a tough thing sometimes. So we just got these folks up and running. The screening started February 1st. We're expecting some data to start coming in and really excited to see if there's um, 
something that we can show in the work that we're doing about how an intervention makes a difference. And the other thing that excites me about this project is if we can make this model work, I'd love to see it expand to other audiences. We know that there is a significant link between brain injury and homelessness. Study after study after study says, got a brain injury, then became homeless. Got a brain injury, then became homeless. They lose their jobs. They can't get along with their neighbors. They don't pay their bills on time. They start. They, they just have a number of problems managing their life in a safe and stable way. So think about if we could raise the awareness of folks that are working to get individuals who are homeless in safe, stable housing, how we might be effective in keeping them there if their interventions were done within the context of brain injury. So I've got big dreams. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the thing about brain injury, though, is we need awareness because people don't realize that someone is brain injured just by looking at them. Right, right. Because they can't see it. There's no big gaping wound to the head. Right. And, you know, so many people think brain injury is just this event, but it's not. You know, it is something that lives with that person for the rest of their lives. We know that brain injury is disease causative and disease accelerative. We know that it is a hidden cause of social failure. If you have a brain injury as a child and you are under five, you are four times more likely to develop a substance use disorder. And the link between brain injury and behavioral health is significant as well. The link between brain injury and involvement in the justice system is significant. Years ago, we did a study with the Department of Juvenile Justice here in Virginia and with researchers at VCU, and we screened every child that was remanded into juvenile justice for the presence of a brain injury over 18 months, and it was 60%. Wow. wow. And if you don't know that that's what you're dealing with, and you're not treating this individual in the context of brain injury and perhaps providing strategies for memory problems, behavior problems, it's like giving cancer drugs to a diabetes patient. Yep. It's just, it's just not going to work very well. You will not get the outcome that you are hoping for. Right. Yeah. Same thing with homelessness and um, yeah. being in the justice system and uh, substance abuse. I mean, yeah. nobody realizes that the underlying cause is – the brain injury. Mm -hmm. It's not something external. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll appreciate this. One of the things that I say quite frequently is uh, you cannot necessarily rely on a neurologist to help you deal with your brain injury. There are more than 600 neurological subspecialties. And so if somebody says you need a neurologist and that person goes to some neurologist who specializes in Parkinson's, again, you may not get the outcome you're hoping for. Right. You need somebody that really understands brain injury. What are the treatment options for brain injury? Well, they're tricky, you know, um, and largely driven by insurance, which is just a damn shame. You know, when I was working at Sheltering Arms, length of stays were six months, eight months. I had one patient who was uh, in the hospital for 14 months after her brain injury. And these days, you're lucky if you get two, two weeks or four weeks uh, insurance companies are privatizing gain and socializing loss on the backs of people with brain injuries. And so when you're only able to be in the hospital for two weeks, you get a short burst of therapy, and then you go and your insurance limits your number of outpatient visits. And we are condemning people to a life that's less functional than it could be if they got therapy early on. 
in rehab hospitals, you get three hours a day of occupational therapy and physical therapy, and we work on you know individuals' abilities to move, walk, uh, dress themselves, feed themselves. Sometimes it's you know paying bills and managing change and grocery shopping and cooking and driving a car. And we have therapists who are experts at understanding brain injury and being able to provide therapy in a way that they can continue to utilize and grow from. It needs to be given at the right time by the right people in the right place. As an occupational therapist, one of the things that I did frequently was something called task analysis, you know, where we figure out exactly what the steps of a particular task are, say cooking. And we look to see what are the problem points, what are the pain points for someone with a brain injury? Is it organization and sequencing and planning, which is critical to cooking, but quite frequently impacted if someone has what's known as a frontal lobe injury. The frontal lobe is the seat of executive functions, what makes us executives of our own lives, if you think about it that way. And if the frontal lobe is damaged, those sorts of things suffer and your ability to do things like remember to pay your bills on time or to do your laundry before you run out of underwear or any number of things are compromised. Mm -hmm. And treatment needs to be specialized too, Mm -hmm. because it, the symptoms differ from patient to patient. Mm -hmm. You're not always going to have a frontal lobe injury. You could have Mm -hmm. an injury to another part of the brain. You're right. You're right. Um, Does brain injury shorten life expectancy? At all? It does. You know, I was talking earlier about Doug, and um, gosh, I guess it was last week we learned that Doug and another camper had passed away on the same day. The number of campers that I've known over the years that I've had to say goodbye to is really quite stunning when I start to add it up. Statistics tell us that brain injury will shorten the lifespan uh, by an average of seven years. And even for those individuals that have a mild brain injury, we see a statistically significant shortening of the lifespan. Um, one of the things that we know that happens in brain injury, for example, is it can knock the endocrine system out of whack and people will develop diabetes. And diabetes is a complicated medical condition to manage under the best of circumstances. And if you have someone who has cognitive deficits or physical deficits, managing that diabetes becomes difficult and that can shorten the lifespan as well. That's one thing that people don't realize is that a brain injury can affect every part of your body, every Mm -hmm. system in your body. Mm -hmm. Um, We just think of it as affecting our brains and memory and concentration and emotions. But it really can have a physical impact on the rest of the systems of your body. And I think we're so lulled into this sense of security by how hard our skull is. But, you know, the brain is this really squishy mass that, you know, is about the consistency of congealed oatmeal. You could put your thumb through it with no effort at all. And how is it that that, that blob, built an interstate system and put a man on the moon and painted the Mona Lisa? I mean, when you think about it, it is the most amazing piece of architecture that was ever created. But because... People don't understand how the brain works. We just take so much of it for granted. There's a woman that I know who had a mild brain injury, but we all know mild injury ain't mild. Well, we all don't know, but you and I know that. Um, She fell on the ice at her son's sixth birthday party because he wanted to go ice skating. And she got knocked out briefly. 
This woman is a very accomplished professional with advanced degrees in two fields. And she had to retire early because that brain injury, that simple little bump to the head where she only lost consciousness briefly, has thrown her autonomic nervous system completely out of whack. And one of the things that happens to her sometimes, not all the time, which makes it really tricky, is that she'll stand up and her blood pressure will drop. She never knows when that's going to happen. Happened a couple of weeks ago in the bathroom and she fell and hit her head against the bathroom vanity, knocked herself out, ended up with six stitches in her face, and now she's trying to recuperate from another brain injury that, you know, just so random. Right. Another brain injury caused by her first brain yeah, injury. exactly. And then there's the compounding effects of multiple brain injuries. Mm-hmm. They, it gets exponentially worse mm-hmm. every, uh, you know, brain injury that you have. Yeah, yeah. I've said very often when I'm talking about this to audiences, it's not like three plus three equaling six. This is a case of three times three equaling nine with every single brain injury that you have. After you have your first brain injury, you're three times at greater risk to have a second. And after your second, you're at eight times greater risk to have a third. Right. I think people are somewhat starting to understand that because of the NFL. Oh, yeah. yeah. The the NFL must have helped what you're trying to do in um, making the public aware of how brain injuries can affect people and the fact that you don't need a traumatic blow to your head, one huge blow to your head to cause a brain injury can happen over repetitive hits like that. Mm -hmm. There was a tweet that I saw the other day from Chris Nowinski, who's been just a real leader in the field of calling attention to brain injury in football. And it was a study that looked at the number of hits uh, that could cause a brain injury in kids that were playing flag football versus kids that were playing, you know, full-on football. And it was it was significant. But I remember early on, um, Kevin Guskowitz, who was named a MacArthur genius and is now the chancellor at UNC, he started his career as an athletic trainer at UNC. And he said one time that if you had a four-year career playing football in high school – and then you played four years in college, and then you had a four-year career in the pros. It was like driving your car into a brick wall at 25 miles an hour, something like 10,000 times. Yeah, it just, yeah. No one ever thinks of it like mm, that. No, and I remember hearing that and just it just being such a great illustration of what it was that we were talking about. It's not the one blow that does it in football players. It's repeated subconcussive blows. Yes. And that's what we're learning about and understanding. Yep. And it's a good thing that the public is learning about that too. Mm-hmm. It's leading to greater awareness, I think, all the way across the board. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're in a personal injury office today. Tell us about the connection between personal injury lawyers and BIV and what you do. So... I had a patient when I was at Sheltering Arms, and this was a gentleman who had been the manager of a furniture store, and he had gotten to work one early and found one of his employees breaking into the safe. He was trying to steal from his employer employer to support a drug habit, and the employee picked up a big wooden duck and bashed Ernie over the head and gave him his brain injury, a significant brain injury. Well, because that was a workers' comp case, Ernie had lots of options for treatment early on. But one of the things that nobody seemed to understand was that there was going to be a point that workers' comp stopped working. And without advanced planning, 
and a lawyer on his side, one day he would be left without any supports at all. And that day was rapidly coming. So I called your dad. And he took care of Ernie, and I was forever grateful to him for that. And that's how he and I met, and we became fast friends. You know, so many folks with brain injuries don't understand what options are available to them, don't understand what their rights are, and don't have somebody fighting in their corner. I get so tired of hearing that personal injury lawyers are ambulance chasers because sometimes you're the only one fighting for somebody who needs somebody in their corner. You know, patients who undergo medical malpractice, it's it's just, it's criminal. That's why you guys are lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so many folks don't have an advocate on their side. They don't understand the magnitude of what this is going to mean for the rest of their lives and the supports and services that they may need. And not everybody who could benefit from a personal injury lawyer can get a personal injury lawyer. If you're driving your own car and you run it off the median and have a rollover, um, you know, that that may not be a personal injury case because nobody did that to you. And so it's unfortunate. But if you have a case that could help you be supported for the rest of your life and give you an advocate and somebody in your corner, that's a really important piece of, of the continuum of care the way I see it. Mm-hmm. And it's especially important because, like we were talking about earlier, brain injury is a silent disease. You don't see it on the outside. Mm -hmm. You can't tell even sometimes by just talking Mm -hmm. to a person that they have a brain injury. And our job as advocates of survivors of brain injury is to convince a jury or convince a judge to award Mm -hmm. compensation for all that that person has gone through Mm -hmm. and all that they're going to go through Mm -hmm. for the rest of their life because most brain injuries are permanent. Mm Mm-hmm. And who who better to know that? I mean, you know, one of the things that if you are working in brain injury that we all have in common is we are fascinated by the brain and so grateful that the one we have works. You're right. Because so many people don't. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons I'm always so grateful for personal injury lawyers who are practicing in the field because we share this common love of the brain and we share a common understanding of what it means and what it can mean for somebody's life over the long haul. And given the number of challenges that people with brain injuries face on a daily basis, every little bit of help helps. Mm-hmm. There's no no other way to say that, I think. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think that, well, I said no, and then I kept talking, didn't <laughs> I? Well, okay. So, yes, I do have a few more things to add. One of the things that I'd like folks to know is, you know, what the Brain Injury Association of Virginia does. We've talked a lot about camp and we've talked about some advocacy, but I think that one of the things that we're most proud of is our information and referral program. We started this program back in 1983 when parents were struggling and there were no resources out there. So if someone calls BIAV, we can figure out, you know, what it is that they need to know, if there's pieces of education that they need to understand about resources that are available to them outside of the hospital, if there are doctors that they need to see, what about support groups, if it's a complicated technical assistance sort of thing, we can help them figure out how to apply for Medicare or Medicaid and help them fill out forms. It's individualized it's no no fee, and it's led by experts. You know, our information and referral specialist was a discharge planner at a hospital working with individuals with brain injuries 
for, you know, 15 years. So she understands how to support these people even years after their injury. One of the things that we do when folks call us is we enter the information that they're telling us in a database. What's the primary reason that they called? What are they calling us about? And then we provide what's known as a needs and resources assessment to the lead agency in Virginia so that they can better plan their programs and resources for folks with brain injuries. I can tell you that last year when we looked at the information in our database, 41% of people were calling us about living, you know, housing. What's going to happen as aging caregivers die? Where are these folks who need supervision going to go? This is a planning issue that we've got to start addressing now. Um, So that's one of the programs that we operate. We also do a lot of outreach One of the things that happens in Virginia is if you are injured and admitted into a hospital with a diagnosis related to brain injury, you are reported to something known as the Virginia Statewide Trauma Registry. And we get the names of individuals who are reported to that registry. And we send out a letter that says, you've been seen in a hospital related to brain injury for a reason related to brain injury. If you're having trouble, give us a call. Let us know. We're here to help you for what comes next. Some people get out of the hospital and doctors have said, you're going to be fine. And then they get home and they're not fine. And their life starts falling apart and they don't know why. And then they call us and they say, oh my God, I don't feel crazy anymore. Somebody understands. I thought I was losing my mind. So we do that outreach so that folks know that there's a place to turn for what comes next. Um, We do an outreach mailing, and the one we did last year was to magistrates across the state to say, you're seeing people with brain injuries every day, and you don't know it, and we'd like to tell you more about it. Well, they called us back and said, tell us more about it. And so we did. And a couple of weeks ago, they asked us to do a Q&A. And Scott Bucci, who is a lawyer here at the firm, joined me on that call. So we talked to 400 magistrates about brain injury. And we told them that estimates would suggest that one in every 10 people that they see has had a brain injury, which is going to impact you know, their ability to respond their ability to follow through, their ability to check in when they need to, and those sorts of things. So between the outreach that we do and the information and resources that we provide, we're trying to help people who have no other place to turn, to see if there's another place that they can turn to. Well, you're doing amazing work. Thank you. And we really appreciate it from our side of things. It's a real privilege to watch a brain come back online and to be able to serve these folks that need somebody in their corner. And BIAV is a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So do you run strictly off donations? Uh, we, we do run some of our programs off donations. We have a couple of contracts with the state of Virginia, that $1.2 million, a little bit of that will come back to us as part of our state contract. But we do need donations because that doesn't pay for the advocacy work that we do. You can't use state dollars to lobby the state. So Camp Bruce McCoy is another instance of times that, you know, the unrestricted money that comes to us from foundations and grants is very helpful. If anybody is interested in donating, you can go to our website. It's BIAV.net, as in Brain Injury Association, Virginia.net. And there's a Get Involved tab, and you can look there. There are other ways that you can be involved with BIAV, too. You can become a member. You can offer to serve on one of our advisory boards. We're looking for speakers who 
would be willing to go out to me when I talk to audiences to share what it's like to have survived a brain injury, to share a picture of what their daily life is like now, to add understanding. Because sometimes I can stand up there all day long and talk about it, but nothing brings it home like the individual. You know that. You're a trial lawyer. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, you also have the golf tournament. We, we also we didn't talk t- about the golf tournament. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing, because <laughs> you're quite the accomplished golfer. I don't, wouldn't say that. <laughs> but um, any people that want to play in the golf tournament, sign up. You can sign up online. It's Columbus Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think year. we've got the save the date up on the website already. And uh, yeah, it's a great day. We generally have a lot of fun. If the weather holds, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. If the weather holds, you people golf anyway. I don't understand that. (laughs) But you're happy. I'm happy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Anne. This was great. We really appreciate you being here today. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Joseph. I think this is the longest conversation you and I have had, and I hope it's not the last one. It won't be. Thanks. (laughs) 